Okay, here we go. Malachi, chapter two, verse seventeen, chapter, or, and then through chapter three, verse five. Here we go. Malachi chapter two, verse seventeen. It says, "You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold." Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress a hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, there's enough right there. Like, we could cover the whole morning. So what I want us to do is understand the trajectory of what's going on. But the, the title of this one is simply, They Were Faithless, He Is Faithful. Like, that's what you've got to get out of Malachi, Okay. All of Malachi is highlighting the sins that, that Israel was committing to a certain degree whenever God finally says, I will be silent, and it's 400 years before he begins to speak again. If you read Hebrews, Hebrews says that in, in the past, in many and diverse ways, God spoke through the prophets and the priests to his people, but in the final days, he speaks through Jesus Christ. God speaks through Malachi, and then God sends John the Baptist, who is the last of the Old Testament uh, prophets. He's out there in camel's hair and eating honey and, and locusts. And I mean, he's this weird guy out there standing in a river, yelling at everyone, saying, repent the kingdom of... He's the Old Testament prophet. He's the last of them. But Malachi is the last of the prophets that God speaks through. And then he is silent for 400 years until he sends John the Baptist. And we want to look at Malachi and say, Why? Like, this is the long-suffering, kind, and gracious God, and, like, he finally just, he just gets quiet. Like, what was going on in Israel that after bearing with the Israelites for so long that he finally just falls silent? And we saw their faithlessness. They doubted his love. They came with weak worship. They corrupted the priesthood. They were faithless in their marriages and untrustworthy in their finances. And all of this, like, it starts to pile upon us. I mean, if it hasn't been piling upon you while we've been reading Malachi, and you're like just sitting there going, man, they were pretty messed up people. Glad we figured it out. Then you haven't heard the message of Malachi. This is for our instruction. It's for our good. We want to read it very sensitively because I feel like as I read the book of Malachi, to be quite honest, it's like a commentary on our world right now as well. And so we want to listen closely but what I want you to hear is there is this very sudden shift that gives the believer, not the lost, not the one who's searching, not the one who's trying to figure it all out. But if you today are a believer, then there's a shift that starts to happen in Malachi where we should start getting pretty excited and joyful, right? And so that's what's going to kind of happen 
probably in the course of this, just so you know, um, because one time Jared sent me a Marco Polo and he wasn't mean in a bad way. He was just, he's like, hey, I just want to know what was going on in your head yesterday while you were preaching because you got a lot more like emotional at this point. And I was just curious, like, what, what were you processing in that moment? I was sitting there going, I don't, I don't have any idea. I've got to think through that too. But, but as we kind of thought through it, it was, we got back to the gospel and that's incredibly humbling. And that's what you're going to see here. The spoiler alert of this message is, though they were faithless, you're going to see the faithfulness of God. That's your joy. That's where we hang our hope, is that though we are faithless, though they were faithless, God is ever faithful. He will do exactly what he said he will do. And that's what we're going to see here. But first, let's deal with their faithlessness. I love, just so you know, verse 17. Like, I love it. And I'm going to tell you why I love it because I kind of think it's funny, but it's a funny in a sad way. Like, it should not make me laugh, but it really does. So in verse 17, um, let, me, let me get there. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, God says, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? And I love this when it does make me laugh because it's so incredibly blunt. Like God looks at them and he goes, you're wearing me out. Like quit talking, your words are wearing me out. But I think it's very telling because in Exodus 34, right? So I've been, in, I've been living in Exodus, and in Exodus 34, God is going to pass by Moses and he puts Moses like in the, the, the cleft of a rock and he's going to cover him up so that only Moses, so that Moses can only see the backside of God as he passes. And what happens is that as God passes by Moses, the Lord declares his name. He's like, I will declare who I am. And here's what God reveals about himself in Exodus 34. Listen closely. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he also goes on from there, but, but listen to those. Here's the Lord. He proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he absolutely is like no doubt about it, except now at Malachi, he finally goes, okay, enough. Like, I am gracious and merciful. You've used that up. I am slow to anger. I'm there. Like, I have walked this with you. And I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but you're wearing me out. Like, I just think that I love bluntness. Like, I don't like to dance around, you know, Andy telling me something. I'm like, what is Andy really trying to tell me here? Like, he says everything's good, but he kind of has a dip in his tone. So it makes me feel like, you know, I hate dancing in that way. God doesn't dance here. God looks at him. He's been walking with him. And we're finally at this point, and he says, and you've worn me out. Like, you've made me weary. Okay, now before we press into this, because I do think it's important what they're saying that has exhausted the Lord. But before we do that, I do want us to kind of consider that you and I need to be doing some hard work through Malachi. You and I should be doing some pretty hard work, and that hard work is the hard work of our sanctification. Philippians chapter 2, 12 says... Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. 
And I'm going to tell you why I think this is really an important verse right here. But listen to that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. You, believers, continue to work out your salvation. Some translations say your own, tra- your own salvation, just to make sure you get that that's something that you own. With fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. Y'all, this is what defines a Christian life. What defines a Christian life is that we are committed to a pursuit of holiness. We are committed to working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what does that mean, fear and trembling? Because he's good and merciful and slow to anger and he's full of loving kindness and I'm his workmanship in Christ Jesus. Then then what does it mean to fear and tremble? And, And so just a very real Arkansan, Ricky way of putting it is, it means to so deeply respect and revere the Lord that that shapes your life. That's what that means. To, to fear and tremble before the Lord means that you so deeply respect him, you so deeply revere him, you stand in awe of who he is, that that begins to shape your entire life. I am not opposed to sermons on how to be a godly father and a godly mother how to have a godly marriage, how to manage your finances. In a godly. I'm not opposed to those things. It's just that I have a stronger conviction that whenever we uphold the glory and the majesty and the goodness of God and we hold that up, that God will begin to refine the rest of our lives as we work out our salvation. I will be a better husband the more I look to God and to Christ and humbly fall underneath such great mercy and grace. I just will. I will be a better friend whenever I look to the cross and understand what it means to die for somebody else. Like, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get at here. As we look at Malachi, you and I should still be doing the work of sanctification. We are sanctified by God. He is working within us. But then scripture is so clear that we better be working on ourselves as well. Like, we bear a responsibility. I cannot make you grow in godliness. Your spouse cannot make you grow in godliness. Your parents cannot make you grow in godliness. We can help. But scripture says, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with deep respect and deep reverence for the Lord, and then that will begin to shape you. You know what the priest and the people then were forgetting to do? To work out their salvation with deep respect and reverence for the Lord. We've seen all throughout Malachi, it all comes down to honor. Their hearts had drifted, and at the heart of all their sin is a lack of honor. They did not honor God as God. They didn't respect Him. They didn't revere Him. They did whatever they wanted, and they called it good because they became a God unto themselves. But you need to know that whenever we lose that reverence in our lives, we will lose the worship in our lives. We will begin to drift. We will begin to slide. I don't say that to scare you. I say that to caution you. I need you around me, for those of you who really know me, to say, Ricky, how's your reverence? When's the last time you were just captivated by who Christ is? Because that changes everything. But if I begin to focus on me and on my kingdom and I begin to rationalize everything and I take my eyes off of who God is, I no longer respect him, I no longer revere him, then I'm no longer working on my sanctification and then I will drift. And Israel at this point, because of their lack of honor, they had drifted from God. And let me just review the results and then we're going to push into the God of justice here. Their hearts drifted from him 
Therefore, throughout Malachi, we see this. Because they had drifted. Y'all do the work of sanctification with me here. Because they had drifted, they doubted his love for them. They worshipped wrongly. They corrupted the priesthood. And they dishonored God with their marriages and with their finances. We might say, well, I would never corrupt the priesthood because I'm not a priest. I don't have the hat. I don't have the ephod. I don't have... We are. We are the royal priesthood. We are the holy nation called out of the darkness so that we can proclaim his excellent light. When we don't live according to his standards that he has called us to live, we have corrupted the priesthood. Whenever we speak corrupting, speak. Whenever we do corrupting things, we are corrupting the priesthood. I am just as guilty, and I would have been just as guilty as they would have been in Malachi. I have this spiritual pride within me that goes, man, if only I were there to lead a D group and really pull them in, I would not. Sin finds a way. And the sin nature that's within us and Satan that is against us, it will find a way to corrupt us. And so their hearts had so drifted because they no longer honored God. That's at the core of it. Y'all with me? Am I good? Okay. So we need this book to caution us because I want you to hear this all throughout Malachi. God does care that you worship him truly. God does care that you know that he loves you and it's without question. God does care that you live a genuinely Christian life to honor him. God does care that you honor him with your marriage and with your family. And he does care that you honor him with your finances. God cares that you honor him in every single aspect of your life. In most of our lives, we can compartmentalize. That's a lot of how I do what I do. I I do this part and I compartmentalize it and I kind of put a pin in it. And then I go over here and I do this and I compartmentalize it. It goes in its compartment. I keep it right here and I compartmentalize right here. Do you all know one of the reasons that we wanted to name the church Cross Life in the very, very beginning of Cross Life? Like in Cross Life Russellville, we liked the idea of the cross and life being in the name. But then we put them together, we slammed them together because you and I as Christians cannot separate the cross from our lives. It's a reminder to us as we gather that the cross affects every aspect of our lives. We cannot compartmentalize what we do here, what we do now, what we struggle with here and how we walk here and then how we're going to perform here at our job and who we're going to become and how we're going to speak and when it's acceptable. We don't get to do that. What we get to do is we get to say you died on a cross to redeem me from my sins, and here is my life. I will give it all. So, we have to do the hard work of sanctification. The more you push and and pull yourself into God, the more you will find that you are just a better fill-in-the-blank. Not against those topical studies. I have a book called Exemplary Husband. I read it whenever I don't feel like an exemplary husband. And then I knock out a chapter two. I'm like, <laughs> got it together. And I put it back on there, right? I've made incredibly slow progress. But you, you understand the heart of it. I'm, I'm not against those things. I just think that whenever we preach, we need to preach the glory of God so that we're all captivated again and again by who he is. And we let God shape us. But we bear the responsibility. Y'all hear me. We bear the responsibility. I am responsible for Ricky's salvation and working that out. Not me that Christ hadn't. You hear what I'm saying? Like, I'm working out my salvation. Chas can't make me holier. Andy can't make me holier. Trent can't make me holier. 
work it out with fear and trembling. They forgot to fear and tremble. And therefore, they pursued their own way. So then they say, where's the God of justice? Like, that's, that's where we are back in Malachi 2.17. And I told you why I think it's funny, but I also wanted to kind of just lovingly say to you, notice the trend here. God states a truth. They question his truth and defend themselves. And it never goes well. So pastorally, very lovingly, I just want to encourage you that when you are convicted of sin, y'all just repent so humbly. Like, just repent. Like, repentance is a good thing. It's good to say, I'm sorry. You're right. I should not be doing that. You're right. I messed up. Like, repentance is a good thing. But I, I just, pastorally, when the Lord convicts you, don't question the Lord of hosts. Don't argue with the Holy One. Just very simply, just shut up and repent. Okay, like, so if he convicts you, just shut up and repent. That's as theologically sound and bluntly as I can put it. But I'm guilty of that. I'm like, Lord, I, I know, I know. But you know, and then I read Malachi, I'm like, oh, crud. Like, I would do exactly what they're doing. So here's what they said. Where is the God of justice? And God must delight in evil because evil keeps him to prosper. Where is the God of justice? And this offends the Lord. He says, at this point, he's like, you're wearing me out. But I, I want to push into this because you and I, probably, if we're honest, we probably have those same struggles. We probably have the same question as they did. Whenever they say everyone who does evil is good and in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, like underneath that, I'll kind of get to that. And, and where's the God of justice? Like, I'm tired, God, of seeing sin all around me. Like, why don't you do something? Maybe you don't ever think that. Maybe I'm alone, but I do think that you and I need to consider just a couple of things real quick because I think that, that they have a fair question almost in my flesh. Like, I think that there's a kind of a fair assumption of, where is he? Like, he used to open up the ground and swallow people whole. He used to rain down fire. He destroyed cities. He turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. Like, where is he now? They'd become very jaded, and I can too. I can be very cynical. I can be very sarcastic. I can be very jaded. Ricky Massengill, that's, that's like kind of part of the core of who I am, and I have to fight that, to be quite honest. But you need to know, some, just to help with a different perspective, God does care about wickedness. He absolutely cares about the wickedness. He hates wickedness. He hates sin. If he did not care about sin and wickedness and our holiness, then Christ would not have come to die on the cross. He absolutely cares, and he clearly says it all throughout Scripture. But he also said in Ezekiel 33, 11, you should write this one down. And it actually, um, similar sentiments are echoed throughout Scripture. But this one is the one I just thought, hey, this is so clear. Ezekiel 33, 11, listen to what God says. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Oh, why will you die, O house of Israel? That's what the Lord said to him through Ezekiel. He says, I take no delight in the wicked. I think that sometimes we have this idea that if that's evil, God must take great delight in just squashing them. 
Y'all, if we hate evil, if you and I, if we hate evil, I'll come back to that verse again. If you and I hate evil, imagine how much more sorrowful it must be for the creator who is watching his creation indulge in these things. If you and I hate evil, imagine how much more wicked it must look like to the, the holy Lord. We're not alone in hating the evil. We're just not gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy and grace like he is. I kind of have this idea that a holy God loves to squash and just, to, you know, just put his foot on like a bug and just squash them. In Ezekiel 33, 11, you can hear the heart of the creator God it says this. You and I need to hear this. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Oh, why will you die, O house of Israel? It's Ezekiel 33, 11. And you, you can hear that throughout Scripture. If God delighted in the death of the wicked, Christ would have never came. We would have gotten the justice that we were deserving of. Like, we forget that. It's almost like we were owed Christ, and we just kind of take it for granted. What does the Lord delight in? Not squashing evil. He delights, according to Scripture, in repentance. That's what the Lord delights in is repentance. Okay, now I'm going to give you some other, other just, I'm not giving you the references. I'm just going to kind of point you to them real quick. I just want us to have this different perspective. In Peter, it tells us that the Lord is patient towards us because he desires that everyone would reach repentance. His desire is that everyone would reach repentance. Therefore, he is incredibly patient. Praise the Lord, y'all, that he was patient with us. Praise the Lord. But he desires that everyone would reach repentance. And so he provides that time. So that when he decides to punish sin in their lives and to judge them, he will not do it with pleasure. I think it will be actually very sorrowful and heartbreaking for that holy God to do that to his creation. But when he does, it will not be because he wasn't gracious and merciful. It will be because he's giving them exactly what they wanted. Jesus tells a parable um, of a, a tenant, of someone who kept a vineyard, and he sowed good seed. And this good seed and this good field with good soil was supposed to bring about good fruit. But the enemy, uh, a neighbor, came in at night and sowed weeds. And so as everything was coming to fruition, the, the weeds are growing up, the seed is bearing fruit, the weeds are growing up, and his workers come to him and they say, do you want us to go and pluck out the weeds because it's grown all up and tangled? And Jesus told them, no, because in plucking out the, the weeds, you may do more harm. But don't worry, in the end, I will do the harvest. I will sort it out, the weeds from the good seed. That's my job. You let me do it. And there will be judgment, and it will be eternal. We don't have to sort it out, y'all. Hate the sin, let it move us, but I need the compassion that the Lord has, that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He's broken by it. All of Scripture attests, absolutely, he hates sin, and absolutely, y'all hear me, he will execute justice. He will. But I wanted you to hear Ezekiel 33, 11. If they've gotten this bad, why didn't he just squash them? Because he has no delight in the death of the wicked. He wants them to turn. He wants them to repent. Another way that we can understand this is that, that Israel was questioning, um, not questioning simply the justice of God, but basically saying um, that they're disregarding the sins of others. 
Those who do evil, he calls good and he delights in them. In other words, if, if he didn't delight in the evil that they're doing, then why are they still here? Y'all, this is where we are in our culture right now. This is where, and this is where we are in our church culture whole scale. Not every church. I'm not criticizing every church. But I'm saying in our church culture today, we are in this, this realm where we are disregarding sins for the sake of tolerance and for the sake of unity. I'm all about unify and be of one accord, but never whenever we disregard sin. I fear that this is where we are in our churches today, and you can agree or disagree with me, but pastorally I want you to hear me. In our churches today, whole scale, across the whole board, not every individual church, we accept the unacceptable by sin, I mean. We tolerate and we endorse sin. We make sinners so comfortable that there is no need for repentance. And we are so worried about being misread now that we are willingly ushering them into eternal judgment. We coddle their sin because we don't want them to be uncomfortable. We accept the unacceptable. We say, hey, the evil that you're doing is good. He must delight in it because it's continuing on and on. That's where Israel, and you read all of Malachi and you see that. He's okay with this blemish sacrifice. It's evil, but it must be good enough because he just lets it keep going. They forgot that he is a God of justice. He's just incredibly patient. He's just incredibly loving, loving and kind. He's incredibly merciful. But y'all, this identity that many churches have embraced today, that's not love. That is unbiblical. And to be honest, it's just utterly sinful. How can people repent of sin if they don't know what sin is? How can they live for the glory of God if they don't even hear about the glory of God? How in the world can we tell them that that which God has said is an abomination or is unacceptable to him or a sin to him? How can we not tell them that that is unacceptable and an abomination or a sin to him? How in the world is that loving? It's not. I don't want to be a jerk about it. I just want to say we serve a holy God who has made us his own. And in Malachi... They go, well, are you really that holy? And do you really care? And what does it mean for us to be? Our, we're, we'll, tell, we'll define the standards. To be very, very clear, God defines sin, and sin is sin, and there will be punishment for sin. People need to know that. Ricky, who am I to tell somebody that they're sinning? You're nobody. God defines a sin. But if you love them, wouldn't you want to save them? If you love the Lord, wouldn't you want to tell others that they need to repent because that's where he has delight as well? Like, that's what we're called to. And the Malachi priests are just like, oh, well. Y'all, Israel forgot that he cared about their holiness, and I think that that's what we do too. We forget that he cares about our holiness. Okay. Point two. (laughs) I'm just joking. We're a little bit further. Um, Here's what I want you to hear. They say, where is this God of justice? And we've heard about their faithlessness, their faithlessness, their faithlessness, their faithlessness. And you know what? Look at the faithfulness. This is, this is where I get a little bit more excited. But they say, where is the God of justice? You know what the next verse says? I'm coming. That, that is cool, right? So they're sinning and everything's falling apart and they feel the heavy condemnation. And he says, I'm coming. You want to know where the God of justice is? I'm coming and I'm going to step into that mess right there. Like that's Awesome. And, and y'all are just kind of like, okay, big deal. But no, it's really, this is the coming of Christ. He just said, I am coming and I will set all things right. I am the God of justice and I am coming. That is how God responds. That's 
Awesome. Okay, so for those in Malachi's day, take a real quick look at verse 16, which we'll push into next week. Um, look at verse 16 of chapter 3. They hear all this, and it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And he says, They shall be mine. This is where they get excited. This is where you and I should get excited. Not everybody in Malachi's day was bad. Not everybody was wayward. There was a remnant. There was a remnant who loved the holiness of the Lord. And they hear all this. And as they talk, God says, I hear you in your mind. And then he's going to start talking about the final day. Okay, but I just want you to see that. So here's the crux of Malachi. God announces that he is coming. This is the prophecy of Jesus' coming. He says, I'm coming. And then you got to wonder what happens in their mind because then there's 400 years of silence. But watch everything that he says. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. You have to hold your place in Malachi, and now go to Matthew. Okay? So hold your place in Malachi and go to Matthew, the very next book to your right. There's one page right there that says probably New Testament or blank on purpose, you know, in your Bible. That one page represents 400 years. They just condensed it down into one page. Okay? So he says this in chapter 3. Flip to to Matthew chapter 3. And you're in Matthew chapter 3. Now here's what Malachi said. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, so here we go. The messenger that, he's gonna, that he refers to in Malachi chapter 3 is John the Baptist. So 400 years later, Matthew chapter 3, here's what we get. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There has been nothing like this for 400 years. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and and all Judea, Israel, and all region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is, y'all, we lose the craziness of this situation. A wayward Israel, they haven't heard from their God at all. And then here shows up a guy with long hair, camel hair, leather belt, eating honey, or eating locusts dipped in wild honey, and he's out there in the river saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Would they not be hungry and waiting for this moment after 400 years of not hearing anything from their God? But what he said in Malachi, he is faithful to fulfill. I'm going to keep going. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Right? Where's that God of justice in Malachi? Oh, there's judgment coming. There's a wrath to come. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. Now listen to this. But he who is coming after me. So John just said, there's one who's greater than me. There's one who's coming after me. Okay. Is mightier than me. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, that's judgment, and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That was so Malachi 3, 
Where's this God of justice? God says, I'm coming, but first you're going to have a messenger. He will prepare the way. John the Baptist is the messenger. He's a messenger that we hear referred to in Isaiah, throughout the minor prophets, and especially in Malachi. Some of God's final words are, there's a messenger coming, and I will be faithful. But notice, look back at Malachi 3 again. Verse 1, behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before who? Me. That little word, me, is pretty powerful. The little word, me, you need to understand, God just said, I, God, am coming. Now, Jesus is the one who shows up. He didn't say, prepare the way before Jesus. He said, prepare the way before me. This is where the mystery of the wonderful Trinity comes into play. Because Jesus is God, and God is Jesus, and there is a wonderful mystery in the Trinity that we don't need to figure out. We just need to say, okay, you're God. I don't get it. And that's okay. It's okay not to know the mysteries. But I just want you to see that. God clarified that the one who would come would be himself. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. The Holy Spirit is God. God is the Holy Spirit. Holy Trinity, triune mystery, three in one. We don't have to get it. We just worship it because he's God. Okay, so I just wanted you to see that little, little thing right there. Okay, look at, verse, look at the next verse and, and the, in Malachi. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, now go to Luke chapter 2. We're like winding down, I promise. We're like, we're getting there. But I just, I can't break any of this apart. So if you need to shift, if the butt is numb and the brain is getting dumb, then just kind of shift, stand up. But you got to just see this. I want you to see the fulfillment of all that God said that he would do, he does. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. So now we're in Luke chapter 2, verse 22 through 33. It says, And when the time came, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, that's who we're talking about here, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. That, by the way, in the law tells us that they were poor. Read the law and you'll see that that's the poor offering. Now, this is what I love. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. What does that mean to wait for the consolation of Israel? Waiting for what Malachi said was going to happen would happen. The consolation of Israel is the comfort of Israel that's coming. It's that the Messiah would be coming. This is what he's been waiting on. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed the Lord, said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and to the glory for the people of Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Do you know what we see in Luke chapter 2? I just want you to like make sure we don't miss this. The Lord suddenly appeared in his temple as a baby. 
Like whenever he says a Malachi, the Lord will come into his temple suddenly. I think everybody had this expectation that he would be radiant and glorious, this military king, and he would stride into the temple and he would begin to command. And instead, what happens is he comes so suddenly that he's still a baby and he still has to have sacrifices and, 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 and follow through with the law. Simeon gets it. Here's what I want you to understand, that the Lord who promises is the Lord who fulfills. Like that's what we begin to see at Malachi. They didn't understand all this. You and I take for granted that we can look back at the cross, we can look back at Christ and have that peace. They didn't have that. And so whenever the child Jesus walks into the temple so suddenly and Simeon goes into this praise, you and I don't get it. We don't. We grow old to the gospel. There's no way we would have just been like so exuberantly joyful over that. God's timing, y'all, is not our timing. He waited 400 years before he fulfilled this. And that's what it reminds us of in Peter. One day is as a thousand, a thousand is as one day. Why? Because the Lord is patient to fulfill his promises in his own way. And that includes the repentance of everyone if possible. I'm going to move quickly through this, but it does say that who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The Messiah whom they all long to see is a purifying agent. He's going to purify. He's going to do it with fire. He's going to do it with fuller's soap. And God is telling the Israelites, you won't even be able to stand whenever he comes. Your righteousness is not enough. It goes on, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The answer is no one. No one could stand before the righteousness of God. The corrupt priest will no longer be able to make excuses. They'll just see his holiness. The, the greedy um, people will just see his wrath. He says, I'm coming. You won't be able to bear it. And then it starts to talk about how you purify the priesthood. Y'all, here's the deal. What, what they needed to hear in Malachi is that their greatest need was a savior. They couldn't do it. You don't need greater health. You don't need greater wealth. You don't need all of your job to be peaceful right now. What everybody needs is a Savior. And praise God that he came. We take that for granted. We were children of wrath. We were dead. And yet he came. We were enemies. And yet at the right time while we were weak, he came and died for the ungodly. Like, and he's telling them, here's how bad you are. You've got to understand the weight of condemnation that would be coming down on them. And he says, you want the God of judgment? I'm coming, and I will step into this. But our greatest need, their greatest need, is a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. I want to keep going. He talks about how he will purify. That's what we've been made. We have been made righteous before the Lord. Whenever I pray, I don't have to pray with my head hung low in guilt. I am the Lord's. All my sin has been paid for. There are consequences of sin that may remain, but my sin has been paid for. I am holy before the Lord. He delights in me. Zephaniah says he dances over me. Like, that's amazing. Whenever I am here today so imperfect and just trying to do my best to communicate this, and I'm going to go back after this sermon and be like, Lord, I'm sorry I didn't do this, and this is like I've got my own perfectionism stuff that I work on. And whenever you go throughout the week and you get to the end of the day and you're like, Lord, I'm sorry that I struggle with this and this, and this, the Lord is dancing over his people, as Zephaniah says, because he delights in you. 
We are really good at laying guilt upon one another, and we should because we need to call sin, sin. But we are not so good at saying, did you remember that he delights in you fully, that you are a joy to him, that you are a pleasing aroma to him. That's the work of Christ. That's what the Savior did for us. He took that which was corrupt, and he has made us incorruptible before the Lord. We will struggle with sin, but we no longer give in to it. We may sin, but we no longer delight in our sin. We may sing praises, but he fills those with his Holy Spirit. He makes us a pleasing noise in his ear. When did we forget that? That's amazing. Then he says, but I will draw near to you for judgment. Who is he going to judge? What was filling that culture? And then we're going to get out of this passage. But I had to get this far so that we could continue to get further because it's all together, like it's all linked together. But he says, don't worry, the God of judgment, I'm not only coming and I'm not only going to purify and redeem you and make you good, I will execute that judgment that you're waiting on. And here's who I'm going to judge very quickly. He says, I will judge in swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hard worker in his wages, against the, which, I'm sorry, the hard worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. So, just to kind of clarify what each one of those means, he's going to judge the sorcerers, which are those who deal in the occult. You know, it's all around us. Like, if you don't believe that the occult is around us, you're not paying attention. And it's so subtly worked its way into our culture to where it's even normal within the church. And just so you know, if you go down um, in front of, I just say in front of Northside, it's not directly in front of Northside, there is a place called the Occult Shop. That's unusual in Fort Smith. It's not unusual in our world. But there are other aspects of the occult that have worked themselves into the normalcy of our lives. And he says, I will judge those who practice in the occult. He says, I will judge the adulterers. Those are those who break covenant of their marriages. Like, I'm going to deal with that, he says. And he says, I'm going to deal with those who swear falsely, either against others or privately. Sometimes we lie privately to ourselves or privately to others so we think nobody would ever know. But he will deal with all of them who deal falsely. He says, I will deal with those. I will judge quickly those who oppress hired workers and don't treat them fairly, those who don't take care of the widows, and those who don't take care of the orphans. And, and these three areas are all echoed throughout the book of James, by the way. The voice of the hired workers cries out from the field. If you don't care for the widows and orphans, your religion is worthless. That's all in James. And he says, I'm also going to deal with those, get this one, who thrust aside the sojourner, the alien, the one who who is a stranger in your land, if you cast them aside, if you thrust them aside, I'm going to judge them. Hospitality is great within the context of the church. Wonderful. Thank you that you have hospitality and that you can cook because I can't, right? Hospitality is great within church, but a biblical understanding of hospitality is that it was extended towards strangers. It's good for this. It's intended for that. It's greater for that. You look at, at the Old Testament law, and you're going to see that they were to treat aliens and sojourners with such great respect and hospitality. And so he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to move against them, and I'm going to move against those who don't fear me. Ricky, how do you stack up on those? Let's do the work of sanctification here. You know what? My greatest need was a Savior, and he met it. Praise God that I am one of the remnant, 
Malachi had a remnant of those who feared the Lord. God has a remnant now of those who fear the Lord. All the sins that Satan can throw against you, if you are a child of God, the Savior has already died for those. And you are a delight to him, and he dances over you. Like, that's the shift that begins to happen in my heart in Malachi. Though they were faithless, though I have been faithless in my life, God has been faithful. And if he fulfills those promises, he will fulfill every single promise that I see throughout all Scripture. Not only the God who speaks, not only the God who sustains, but the God who fulfills. He will keep you. And that's what we see in Malachi. We see his hatred of sin, absolutely. He hates flippancy. He hates apathy. He hates sin. But you know what? He does not delight in the death of the wicked. But he will come in judgment. He sent the messenger. He sent Jesus. And Jesus will come again. And that's what we see in chapter 4. Now let's pray. Lord God, for the length of this, Lord, I, I just leave that in your hands. Lord, I don't, I only know to speak what you've put on my heart to share so that we can understand Malachi. But Lord, your word going out, that's my obedience to you. But what happens with that word, the hearts it falls on, the nurturing of the seed, the growing of the seed, the internal sanctification, the recognition of sin, the the joy of reminding ourselves and remembering the gospel, Lord, all of that is your work. And so, Lord, thank you. But, Lord, for where I spoke too much, I pray that you forgive me. And, Lord, for where I spoke too little, I pray that you forgive me. I pray only this, Lord that you are delighted in how we worship you. Lord, that you see our hearts, though we are weak, and you delight in us, your workmanship, because of Christ Jesus, because of your mercy and love, because you keep us. Lord, do your work that we can't do. And Lord, make us sensitive so that we can repent if that's where you've led us. Lord, also teach us to just have great joy in the Savior. You promised you would come and you came. And you've promised you are coming again and you will. And you've promised you will never leave nor forsake me. And you won't. And you've promised that I am forever yours inscribed upon the palms of your hands and I am. You've promised that what you've called me to, you will see me through and you will. You've promised that you are the good shepherd and you will lead me beside still waters and you will. And you have promised that one day I will be with you forever and ever and you will wipe every tear from my eye. And you will. Until then, Lord, make me sensitive to your spirit so I can live for you. Amen.